good morning, or afternoon, or evening, depending on when you're listening to this. I'm Miss B, and this is virtually Miss B's room. Okay, so last time, I forgot to read you a poem, and isn't that just like me? Um, God forbid anybody asks me to hand you a paper of any sort, because you know I'll forget for two weeks. Okay, so to make up for me forgetting, I have two poems to read to you today. Both of them coming out of period four, where apparently there was some, some like poetry magic happening. I've got a lot of really good ones out of period four. Okay, this one's entitled Transcendental Poem. Chicken or the egg? The thought plays around with your bouncing leg. It is always either or, what is really on the mind when we ask for more. What's on the mind is not what's supposed to be. Does the younger generation still consider the holy creed? Don't ask to see when society is blind. It is a self-adventure you alone must find. To truly think is to truly see. What we take for granted is where you want to be. So that one is a really clear emulation of the Tupac poem we read in the Depths of Solitude. Um, And you guys can't see this, but um, our poet also um, used some of the conventions of that poem in replacing the word two with the number two. She did a really excellent job, not only with the emulation of the Tupac poem, but in like the consideration of the transcendental ideas here too. In particular, you can see like, don't ask to see when society is blind, it is a self-adventure you alone must find. So it's this idea that like, you have to know your own mind in order to be truly happy. Okay. So the next poem we have is an emulation of the Dickinson poem, and it's called Fallen Leaf. Dappling a forest floor, heavenly light shines from a distant, ever-present sun. The leaf that rests lies alone, but it alone is shone upon by the light. Shaded leaves clinging to the tree claim to know the light. Together they agree because together they experience. Only the fallen leaf knows the light, but no one believes a solitary leaf, a fool for breaking free. I really like that last line, that the leaf is a fool for breaking free, and I think that we can apply that like really clearly to um, our boy Chris, uh, especially in regards to like all of the answers you guys gave me to um, last episode's questions. They're really very funny. So um, let's dive into some of those. Usually I section this out, but I'm on a roll here, so we'll just keep going. All right. So chapter seven was a lot about um, Chris's interpersonal relationships, particularly with the people he met while he was on the road. So the first question I asked you was, is he okay? Like, is he mentally well? And you guys overwhelmingly said, maybe. Uh, 66.7% of you said maybe, 33.3% said no, and not a single one of you said, yeah, he's alright. So we don't really know what his mental state is like, but we're not entirely sure he's alright. And then it got even funnier from my perspective. So our first respondent said (coughs) that he's cray-cray, which is funny. Um, And then our next one went into a little bit more detail. I'm really on the fence about this. On one hand, it is really irrational for a person to go galloping into the Alaskan bush unprepared and without proper supplies and rigorous training. 
hunting and physically speaking. Chris also liked to separate himself for long or short periods of time from those he cared about. He had a strained relationship with his family, and he seemed to make decisions on the fly. However, he was very intelligent and understood what he was going to do. Maybe not to the full extent of how hard the Alaskan journey was going to be. He was willing to make sacrifices for his beliefs, even at the expense of those who had gotten close to him. Yeah, I think that you did a really good job of explaining, like, this line that he's kind of walking between, like, um, idealism and fanaticism. Like... Is he nuts or just really eccentric, I guess, is the question here. I think he must have had some stuff going on related to childhood trauma dealing with his family. Also, he has trouble grasping some concepts like in Chapter 7 with the microwave that indicate a possible learning or development disorder. Yeah, maybe so, but even if it isn't an indication of one of those things, I think like the microwave is a really clear example of like the kinds of things that Chris just doesn't consider. Uh, and I think you're right on the money with the childhood trauma thing. And I'm pretty sure we're about to get into that in the book, maybe even um, with this reading. So you're thinking exactly the way that you need to be thinking um, going into the rest of this book. Like, we're set up to believe that something happened, that something happened in Chris's family, like particularly with his dad. Um, you pro guys probably don't remember all the way back to the author's note. But um, John Krakauer says that like this book is about like the fascination that dangerous activities hold for young men and the tense relationships between fathers and sons. So that's particularly where we're going to be looking for that. Um, it mentions that he talked to experts about stalking game. This meant he thought it through and took some steps to prepare for his Alaska trip. However, it also stated he was mad at his parents and ranted about them in a way that sounded slightly unstable. Could have just been anger at the point, though. At the moment, though. Yeah, it could have been. That's fair. Um, but he sure does it a lot and sure does it often in writing. So we'll see if we like get any more information on that point. The way they explain how he is seems like a 50-50 thing, and he may be okay, but he maybe might not be at the same time. Yeah, I think you're touching on exactly what we've been talking about here. Alice could neither forget nor forgive the problems he had with his family. That is succinct and true. Yeah, he's like really not one for forgiveness or moving forward, and I think that's what we've all been talking about here, is that he's got like this weird insistence on like holding on to the past especially for someone who's trying to be transcendental remember emerson said um something like forget each day and be done with it you have done what you could but alex sure is not doing that he's really clinging on to the past there okay so now let's talk about why or why not we like chris so you guys are almost split down the middle First person says, yep, he's cool. I like Chris. I just wish he would have listened to people who tried to persuade him not to go. Yep. Chris had his whole life ahead of him and kind of threw it away for a journey he could have gotten himself out of if he would have taken the time to educate himself more on the area in which he was going to. He seemed to have a good personality and a good sense of humor, if not a radical ideology. I feel that he truly had all good intentions. Things just got out of hand, and he lost control of himself and of his true purpose. Okay, yeah, that's, I think, about how I feel about him, too. I'm, like, frustrated with him, because it seems like a waste um, that he died the way that he did. 
Okay, the next person does not like him. Not really, no. He's an interesting guy, and I think I like reading about Chris, but I know I would not get along with him in real life. He smells! <laughs> and has really intense personal relationships with people, which is not something I generally want in a friend. Okay, that's fair. That's funny. <laughs> it is important, you're right. You don't want um, your friends to be smelly. Okay. I do like Chris because he is not the normal type of person, and he is an adventure seeker. He does things that we should all try to do, and enjoys and appreciates nature in a way that would help the earth now. He also seems to have the outgoing personality that I like and would get along with, also being able to hear a different look on life. Yeah, I hear that. I also really like um, these moments where Chris kind of like lets down the facade, um, particularly where he's like playing the piano and singing or dancing, and you get to kind of like see him as a person instead of as this like, um, I don't know, almost like a mythical or religious figure. Okay, um, next person just says, yep, he seems like a good character. <laughs> yeah, but remember, he's a real person too, he's not just a character. He lived, and the things that he did, he did. Cats, I will not have this. I will kick you out of the office. Okay. No, I do not like Chris. I don't like him because of his poor decisions and because he may influence others with his example. You think he's dangerous. Yeah, that's true, especially for young men. Um, like, my little brother has this weird insistence on, like, going into the wild. He's always talking about, like, um, getting on the Continental Divide Trail and just disappearing for a while, and I don't think it was particularly Chris McCandless. I think that these ideas are there anyway, and we're actually, we're gonna read some, um, examples of other people who did things like, um, like Chris, who, like, went on adventures similar to him. Okay, and then, finally, I asked you if you had any questions that you'd like to discuss. So, um, three of you said no. Cool, I'm glad we're all right. Um, and then we have, I can't really think of anything right now. I feel like our world is collapsing and we live in a post-apocalyptic world where we are all ruled by fear and confined to listen to sad music to try and feel better or spend endless hours on um, my TikTok for you page. But the book is a little ray of sun. Um, heard. Yeah, it is really, it's really frightening. Um, and I think what I'm trying to do to cope is like, maintain as much routine and normalcy as possible um so right now it's like 8 30 in the morning um so I essentially like wake up and get to work the way that I would on a normal day and I kind of recommend doing that too like give yourself a schedule so you're not just laying on the couch all day because that's a recipe for disaster okay um and then we actually have a question why is he asking for advice from hunters and trackers if he failed to use the advice? And my response to that is, are we sure that he failed to use it? We haven't actually seen him in Alaska yet. We just know that he winds up dead and starved. Um, and I think it said in the note that he left on the bus when they found his body that he was injured. So we don't know exactly how he got injured or what happened there, or like the circumstances of his starving. Like, was he starving before that? What happened? So I'm gonna go ahead and say that we don't know for sure that he didn't take their advice. We'll just have to wait and see.
Okay, so when I introduced this book to you, we talked about how this narrative is pieced together from um, different things that Chris left behind in interviews that John Krakauer had with um, the people that met Chris along his journey. Uh, so we have like this real like patchwork of stories coming together for this narrative. And in the next two chapters, we're going to get some stories that are not Chris slash Alex's story, but stories of people that are like him. So we talked about like his mental wellness and we pretty much agreed that he wasn't okay for the most part. So we're going to look at some other people that were kind of affected in the same way and see if it helps us make a decision about Chris slash Alex's um, mental well-being. Uh, so what we're going to want to be looking for here is, I don't know, connections to Chris. Like, in what ways are they similar to him and in what ways are they different? And then maybe we're going to, like, consider ourselves in what ways we're similar to him and in what ways we're different. Okay, so chapter 8 begins on page 70. And it's entitled, Alaska. It may, after all be the bad habit of creative talents to invest themselves in pathological extremes that yield remarkable insights, but no durable way of life for those who cannot translate their psychic wounds into significant art or thought. Theodore Rozak, In Search of the Miraculous. Okay, so that reminds me of um, that answer to the question, um, is he okay and why or why not? So somebody said that he has some childhood trauma. So this epigraph, I think, is kind of touching on that. Um, no durable, who cannot translate their psychic wounds into significant art or thought. So maybe, like, he had some psychic wounds that he could only, like, leave with. Okay. We have in America the big two-hearted river tradition. Taking your wounds to the wilderness for a cure, a, con a conversion, a rest, or whatever. And as in the Hemingway story, if your wounds aren't too bad, it works. But this isn't Michigan, or Faulkner's Big Woods in Mississippi, for that matter. This is Alaska. Edward Hoagland. Up the back, up the black to Chalkyasik. <coughs> okay, so we have again this idea that, like, you have a wounded heart and you, and you take it into the wilderness. So my guess is we're going to be looking at people who are, like, wounded in, like, a similar way as Chris and then went, like, in the same direction he did, into the wilderness. When McCandless turned up dead in Alaska and the perplexing circumstances of his demise were reported in the news media, many people concluded that the boy must have been mentally disturbed. Hey, so did we. The article about McCandless and Outside generated a large volume of mail, and not a few of the letters heaped opprobrium, opprobrium on McCandless, and on me as well, the author of the story for glorifying what some thought was a foolish, pointless death. Okay, so I looked up opprobrium, and it means harsh criticism. Okay, so that means that, like, um, people who, like, learn about his death were like, you, the author, John Krakauer, and Chris McCandless are fools. Okay. Much of the negative mail was sent by Alaskans. Alex is a nut in my book, wrote a resident of Healy, the hamlet at the head of the Stampede Trail. 
The author describes a man who has given away a small fortune, forsaken a loving family, abandoned his car, watch, and map, and burned the last of his money before traipsing off into the wilderness west of Healy. Personally, I see nothing positive at all about Chris McCandless's lifestyle or wilderness doctrine, scolded another correspondent. Entering the wilderness purposefully ill-prepared and surviving a near-death experience does not make you a better human. It makes you damn lucky. One reader of the outside piece wondered, why would anyone intending to live off the land for a few months forget Boy Scout rule number one? Be prepared. Why would any son cause his parents and family such permanent and perplexing pain? Krakauer is a kook if he doesn't think Chris Alexander Supertramp McCandless was a kook, a pinned demand from North Pole, Alaska. McCandless had already gone over the edge and just happened to hit bottom in Alaska. The most strident criticism came in the form of a dense, multi-page epistle from Amber, a tiny uh, Inupet village on the Kobuk River, north of the Arctic Circle. The author was a white writer and a school teacher, formerly from Washington, D.C., named Nick Jans. Warning that it was 1 a.m. and he was well into a bottle of Seagram's, Jans let fly. Over the past 15 years, I've run into several McCandless types out in the country. Same story. Idealistic, energetic young guys who overestimated themselves, underestimated the country, and ended up in trouble. McCandless was hardly unique. There's quite a few of these guys hanging around the state, so much alike that they're almost a collective cliché. The only difference is that McCandless ended up dead, with the story of his dumb acidness splashed across the media. Jack London got it right in To Build a Fire. McCandless is, finally, just a pale 20th century burlesque of London's protagonist who freezes because he ignores advice and commits big-time hubris. His ignorance, <coughs> which could have been cured by a USGS quadrant and a Boy Scout manual, is what killed him. And while I feel for his parents, I have no sympathy for him. Such willful ignorance amounts to disrespect for the land and a paradoxically and paradoxically demonstrates the same sort of arrogance that resulted in the Exxon Valdez spill. Just another case of underprepared, overconfident men bumbling around out there and screwing up because they lacked the requisite humility. It's all a matter of degree. McCandless contrived asceticism and a pseudo-literary uh, pseudo stance um, compound rather than reduce the fault. McCandless's postcards, notes, and journals read like the work of an above-average, somewhat histrionic high school kid. Or am I missing something? The prevailing Alaska wisdom held that McCandless was simply one more dreamy, half-cocked greenhorn who went into the country expecting to find answers to all his problems and instead found only mosquitoes and a lonely death. Dozens of marginal characters have marched off into the Alaska wilds over the years, never to reappear. A few have lodged firmly in the state's collective memory. There was the countercultural idealist who passed through the village of Tanana in the early 1970s, announcing that he intended to spend the rest of his life communing with nature. In midwinter, a field biologist discovered all of his belongings, two rifles, camping gear, a diary filled with incoherent ranting about truth and beauty and recondite ecological theory in an empty cabin near Tofty, its interior filled with drifted snow. No trace of the young man was ever found. Okay, so I looked up the word recondite, um, and it means, like, uneducated or with, like, little knowledge. So this dude's book is full of, like, ecological theory, like, theory about the world, 
Um, that is just total nonsense. Okay. A few years later, there was the Vietnam vet who built a cabin on the Black River east of uh, Chalkiestick to get away from people. By February, he'd run out of food and starved, apparently without making any attempt to save himself, despite the fact that there was another cabin stocked with a meat just three miles downstream. Writing about his death, Edward Hoagland observed that Alaska is not the best site in the world for aromatic experiences or peace-love theatrics. Okay, I looked up hermetic too, and it just means like hermit-like. Okay. And then there was the wayward genius I bumped into on the shore of William Sound in 1981. <coughs> Bless me. I was camped in the woods outside Cordova, Alaska, trying in vain to find work as a deckhand on a scene boat, biding my time until the Department of Fish and Game announced the first opener, the start of the commercial salmon season. One rainy afternoon while walking into town, I crossed paths with an unkempt, agitated man who appeared to be about 40. He wore a bush-like black beard and shoulder-length hair, which he kept out of his face with a, hand, with a headband made from a filthy nylon strap. He was walking toward me at a brisk clip hunched beneath the considerable weight of a six-foot log balanced across one shoulder. I said hello as he approached. He mumbled a reply. We paused to chat in the drizzle. I didn't ask why he was carrying a sodden log into the forest where there seemed to be plenty of logs already. After a few minutes spent exchanging earnest banalities, we went our separate ways. From our brief conversation, I deduced that I had just met the celebrated eccentric whom locals called the mayor of Hippie Cove, a reference to a, bright, to a bight of tidewater north of town that was a magnet for long-haired transients, near which the mayor had been living for some years. Most of the residents of Hippie Cove were... Like me, summer squatters who'd come to Cordova hoping to score high-paying fishing jobs or, failing that, find work in the salmon canneries. But the mayor was different. His real name was Gene Rosalini. He was the eldest stepson of Victor Rosalini, a wealthy Seattle restaurateur, and cousin of Albert Rosalini, the immensely popular governor of Washington State from 1957 to 1965. As a young man, Gene had been a good athlete and a brilliant student. He read obsessively, practiced yoga, became expert at the martial arts. He sustained a perfect 4.0 grade point average through high school and college. At the University of Washington and later at Seattle University, he immersed himself in anthropology, history, philosophy, and linguistics, accumulating hundreds of credit hours without collecting a degree. He saw no reason to. The pursuit of knowledge he maintained was a worthy objective in its own right and needed no external validation. By and by, Rosalini left academia, departed Seattle, and drifted north up the coast through British Columbia and the Alaska Panhandle. In 1977, he landed in Cordova. There, in the forest at the edge of town, he decided to devote his life to an ambitious anthropological experiment. I was interested in knowing if it was possible to be independent of modern technology, he told an Anchorage Daily News reporter Deborah McKinney a decade after arriving in Cordova. He wondered whether humans could live as our forebearers had when mammoths and saber-toothed tigers roamed the land, or whether our species had moved too far from its roots to survive without gunpowder, steel, and other artifacts of civilization. With the obsessive attention to detail that characterized his brand of dogged genius, Rosalini purged his life of all but the most primitive tools, which he fashioned from native materials with his own hands. 
He became convinced that humans had developed into progressively inferior beings, McKinney explains. And it was his goal to return to a natural state. He was forever experimenting with different eras, Roman times, the Iron Age, the Bronze Age. By the end, his lifestyle had elements of the Neolithic. He dined on roots, berries, and seaweed, hunted game with spears and snares, dressed in rags, endured the bitter winters. He seemed to relish the hardship. His home above Hippie Cove was a windowless hovel, which he built without benefit of saw or axe. He'd spend days, says McKinney, grinding his way through a log with a sharp stone. As if merely subsisting according to his self-imposed rules weren't strenuous enough, Rosalini also exercised compulsively whenever he wasn't occupied with foraging. He filled his days with calisthenics, weightlifting, and running, often with a load of rocks on his back. During one apparently typical summer, he reported covering an average of 18 miles daily. Rosalini's experiment stretched on for more than a decade, but eventually he felt the question that inspired it had been answered. In a letter to a friend, he wrote, I began my adult life with the hypothesis that it would be possible to become a Stone Age native. For over 30 years, I programmed and conditioned myself to this end. In the last 10 of it, I would say I realistically experienced the physical, mental, and emotional reality of the Stone Age. But to borrow a Buddhist phrase, eventually came a setting face-to-face -face with pure reality. I learned that it is not possible for human beings as we know them to live off the land. Rosalini appeared to accept the failure of his hypothesis with equanimity. At the age of 49, he cheerfully announced that he had recast his goals and intended to walk around the world, living out of my backpack. I want to cover 18 to 27 miles a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. The trip never got off the ground. In November 1991, Rosalini was discovered lying face down on the floor of his shack with a knife through his heart. The coroner determined that the fatal wound was self-inflicted. There was no suicide note. Rosalini left no hint as to why he had decided to end his life then and in that manner. In all likelihood, nobody will ever know. Rosalini's death and the story of his outlandish existence made the front page of the Anchorage Daily News. The travails of John Mallon Waterman, however, attracted less attention. Born in 1952, Waterman was raised in the same Washington suburbs that gave shape to Chris McCandless. His father, Guy Waterman, is a musician and a freelance writer who, among other among other claims to modest fame, authored speeches for presidents, ex-presidents, and other prominent Washington politicians. Waterman Pear also happens to be an expert mountaineer who taught his three sons to climb at an early age. John, the middle son, went rock climbing for the first time at 13. He was a natural. John headed to the crags at every opportunity and trained obsessively when he couldn't climb. He cranked out 400 push-ups every day and walked two and a half miles to school fast. After walking home in the afternoon, he'd touch the front door and head back to school to make a second round trip. In 1969, as a 16-year-old, John climbed Mount McKinley, which he called Denali, as most Alaskans do, preferring the peaks at the Paskin name. Um, it's actually uh, called that now, legally. Um, everybody calls it Denali. Becoming the third youngest person to stand atop the highest landform on the continent. Over the next few years, he pulled off even more impressive ascents in Alaska, Canada, and Europe. By the time he enrolled in the University of Alaska at Fairbanks in 1973, Waterman had established a reputation as one of the most promising young alpinists in North America. Waterman was a small person, 
barely five feet three inches tall with an elfin face and the sinewy inexhaustible physique of a gymnast acquaintances remember him as socially awkward as a socially awkward man-child with an outrageous sense of humor and a squirrely almost manic depressive personality when i first met john says james brady a fellow climber and college friend he was prancing across campus in a long black cape and blue elton john type glasses that had a star between the lenses he carried around a cheap guitar held together with masking tape and would serenade anybody who'd listen with long, off-key songs about his adventures. Fairbanks has always attracted a lot of weird characters, but he was wacky even by Fairbanks standards. Yep, John was out there. A lot of people didn't know how to handle him. It was not difficult to imagine plausible causes for Waterman's instability. His parents, Guy and Emily Waterman, divorced when he was a teen. And Guy, according to a source close to the family, essentially abandoned his sons following the divorce. He would have nothing more to do with the boys, and it crippled John badly. Not long after their parents split up, John and his older brother Bill went to visit their father, but Guy refused to see them. Shortly after that, John and Bill went to Fairbanks to live with an uncle. At one point while they were up there, John got very excited because he heard that his father was coming to Alaska to climb. But when Guy arrived in the state, he never took the trouble to see his sons. He came and went without even bothering to visit. It broke John's heart. Bill, with whom John had an extremely close relationship, lost a leg as a teenager trying to hop a freight train. In 1973, Bill posted an enigmatic letter alluding vaguely to plans for an extended trip and then disappeared without a trace. To this day, nobody knows what became of him. And after John learned to climb, eight of his intimates and climbing partners were killed in accidents or committed suicide. It's not much of a stretch to posit that such a rash of misfortune dealt a serious blow to Waterman's young psyche. In March 1978, Waterman embarked on his most astonishing expedition, a solo ascent of Mount Hunter's southeast spur, an unclimbed route that had previously defeated three teams of elite mountaineers. Writing about the feat in Climbing Magazine, the journalist Glenn Randall reported that Waterman described his companions on the climb as the wind, the snow, and death. Cornices as airy as meringue jutted over voids a mile deep. The vertical ice walls were as crumbly as a bucket of ice cubes half-thawed, then refrozen. They led to ridges so narrow and so steep on both sides that straddling was the easiest solution. At times, the pain and loneliness overwhelmed him, and he broke down and cried. After 81 days of exhausting, extremely hazardous climbing, Waterman reached the 14,573-foot summit of Hunter, which rises in the Alaska Range immediately south of Denali. Another nine weeks were required to make the only slightly less harrowing descent. In total, Waterman spent 145 days alone on the mountain. When he got back to civilization, flat broke, he borrowed $20 from Cliff Hudson, the bush pilot who'd flown him out of the mountains, and returned to Fairbanks, where the only work he could find was washing dishes. Waterman was nevertheless hailed as a hero by the small fraternity of Fairbanks climbers. He gave a public slideshow of the Hunter Ascent that Brady calls unforgettable. It was an incredible performance, completely uninhibited. He poured out all of his thoughts and feelings, his fear of failure, his fear of death. It was like you were there with him. In the months following the epic deed, though, Waterman discovered that instead of putting his demons to rest, the success had merely agitated them. Waterman's mind began to unravel. John was very self-critical, always analyzing himself, Brady recalls. 
and he'd always been kind of compulsive. He used to carry around a stack of clipboards and notepads. He'd take copious notes, creating a complete record of everything he did during the course of each day. I remember running into him once in downtown Fairbanks. As I walked up, he got out a clipboard, logged in the time he saw me, and recorded what our conversation was about, which wasn't, which wasn't much at all. His notes on our meeting were three or four pages down, behind all of the other stuff he'd already scribbled that day. Somewhere, he must have had piles and piles and piles of notes like that, which I'm sure would have made sense to no one except John. Soon thereafter, Waterman ran for the local school board on a platform promoting unrestricted sex for students at the and the legalization of hallucinogenic drugs. He lost the election, to nobody's surprise save his own, but immediately launched another political campaign, this time for the presidency of the United States. He ran under the banner of the Feed the Starving Party, the main priority of which was to ensure that nobody on the planet died of hunger. To publicize his campaign, he laid plans to make a solo ascent of the south face of Denali, the mountain's steepest aspect, in winter with a minimum of food. <clears throat> he wanted to underscore the waste and immorality of the standard American diet. As part of his training regimen for the climb, he immersed himself in bathtubs filled with ice. Waterman flew to the Kaltina Glacier in December 1979 to begin the ascent, but called it off after only 14 days. Take me home, he reportedly told his bush pilot. I don't want to die. Two months later, however, he prepared for a second attempt. But in Talkeetna, a village south of Denali, that is the point of embarkation for most mountaineering expeditions into the Alaska Range, the cabin he was staying in caught fire and burned to rubble, incinerating both his equipment and the voluminous accumulation of notes, poetry, and personal journals that he regarded as his life's work. Waterman was completely unhelmed by the loss. A day after the fire, he committed himself to the Anchorage Psychiatric Institute, but left after two weeks, convinced that there was a conspiracy afoot to put him away permanently. Then, in the winter of 1981, he launched yet another solo attempt on Denali. As if climbing the peak alone in winter wasn't challenging enough, this time he decided to go up the, the, to up the ante even further by beginning his ascent at sea level, which entailed walking 160 hard, circuitous miles from the shore of Cook Inlet just to reach the foot of the mountain. He started plodding north from Tidewater in February, but his enthusiasm fizzled out on the lower reaches of the Ruth Glacier still 30 miles from the peak, so he aborted the attempt and retreated to Tuk'itna. In March, however, he mustered his resolve once more and resumed his lonely trek. Before leaving town, he told the pilot Cliff Hudson, whom he regarded as a friend, I won't be seeing you again. That reminds me of the um, postcard that Alex sent to um, Wayne Westerberg our first uh, epigraph that says, like, um, oh gosh, what does it say? Let me flip back and I'll read it to you. This is the last you shall hear from me, Wayne. Arrived here uh, two days ago. It was very difficult to catch rides in the Yukon Territory, but I finally got here. Please return mm -hmm. all mail I received to the sender. It might be a very long time before I return south. If this adventure proves fatal and you don't ever hear from me again, I want you to know you're a great man. I now walk into the wild. So we kind of have that same thing where they're like almost sure they're not coming back. Okay. It was an exceptionally cold March in the Alaska Range. 
Late in the month, Muggs Stump crossed paths with Waterman on the Upper Ruth Glacier. Stump, an alpinist of world renown who died on Denali in 1992 and just completed a difficult new route on a nearby peak, the Moose's Tooth. Shortly after his chance encounter with Waterman, Stump visited me in Seattle and remarked that John didn't seem like he was all there. He was acting spacey and talking about and talking some crazy shit. Supposedly, he was doing this big winter ascent of Denali, but he had hardly any gear with him. He was wearing a cheap one-piece snowmobile suit and wasn't even carrying a sleeping bag. All he had in the way of food was a bunch of flour, some sugar, and a big can of Crisco. In his book, Breaking Point, Glenn Randall writes, For several weeks, Waterman lingered in the area of the Sheldon Mountain House, a small cabin perched on the side of the Ruth Glacier in the heart of the range. Kate Bull, a friend of Waterman's who was climbing in the area at the time, reported that he was run down and less cautious than usual. He used the radio he had borrowed from Cliff Hudson to call him and have him fly in more supplies. Then he returned the radio he borrowed. I won't be needing this anymore, he said. The radio would have been his only means of calling for help. Waterman was last placed on the northwest fork of the Ruth Glacier on April 1st. His tracks led toward the east buttress of Denali, straight through a labyrinth of giant crevasses, evidence that he had made no apparent effort to circumvent obvious, ha obvious hazards. He was not seen again. It is assumed he broke through a thin snow bridge and plummeted to his death at the bottom of one of the deep fissures. The National Park Service searched Waterman's intended route from the air for a week following his disappearance, but found no sign of him. Some climbers later discover discovered a note atop a box of Waterman's gear inside the Sheldon Mountain House. 3.13.81 it read, my last kiss, 1.42 p.m. Perhaps inevitably, parallels have been drawn between John Waterman and Chris McCandless. Comparisons have also been drawn between McCandless and Carl McCune, an affable, absent-minded Texan who moved to Fairbanks during the 1970s oil boom and found lucrative employment on the Trans-Alaska Pipeline construction project. In early March 1981, as Waterman was making his final journey into the Alaska Range, McCune hired a bush pilot to drop him a, at a remote lake near the Colleen River, about 75 miles northeast of Fort Yukon, in the southern margin of the Brooks Range. A 35-year-old amateur photographer, McCune told friends that the main reason for the trip was to shoot pictures of wildlife. He flew into the country with 500 rolls of film, 22 and 30 caliber rifles, a shotgun, and 1,400 pounds of provisions. His intention was to remain in the wilderness through August. Somehow, though, he neglected to rearrange for the pilot to fly him back to civilization at summer's end, and it cost McCune his life. This astounding oversight wasn't a great surprise to Mark Stoppel, a young Fairbanks resident who had come to know McCune well during the nine months they worked on the pipeline together, shortly before the lanky Texan departed for the Brooks Range. Carl was a friendly, extremely popular, down-home sort of guy, Stoppel recalls. And he seemed like a smart guy, but there was a side to him that was a little bit dreamy, a little bit out of touch with reality. He was flamboyant. He liked to party hard. He could be extremely responsible, but he had a tendency to wing it sometimes, to act impulsively, to get on bravado and style. No, I guess it really doesn't surprise me that Carl went out there and forgot to arrange to be picked up. But then I'm not easily shocked. I've had several friends who drowned or got murdered or died in weird accidents. In Alaska, you get used to the strange stuff happening. 
In late August, as the days grew shorter and the air turned sharp in, autumn, in autumnal in the Brooks Range, McCune began to worry when nobody arrived to fly him out. I think I should have used more foresight about arranging my departure, he confessed to his diary, significant portions of which were published posthumously in a five-part story by Chris Capps in the Fairbanks Daily News Miner. I'll soon find out. Week by week, he could feel the accelerating advance of winter as his food supply grew meager. McCune deeply regretted tossing all but a dozen of his shotgun shells into the lake. I keep thinking about all the shotgun shells I threw away about two months ago, he wrote. Had five boxes, and when I kept seeing them sitting there, I felt rather silly for having brought so many. Felt like a warmonger, real bright. Who would have known I might need them just to keep from starving? Then, on a brisk September morning, deliverance seemed to be at hand. McCune was stocking ducks with what remained of his ammunition when the stillness was rocked by the buzz of an airplane, which soon appeared overhead. The pilot, spotting the camp, circled twice at a low altitude for a closer look. McCune waved wildly with a fluorescent orange sleeping bag cover. The aircraft was equipped with wheels rather than floats and thus couldn't land, but McCune was certain he'd been seen and had no doubt the pilot would summon a float plane to return for him. He was so sure of this, he recorded in his journal that I stopped waving after the first pass and I got busy packing things up and getting ready to break camp. But no airplane arrived that day, or the next day, or the next. Eventually, McCune looked on the back of his hunting license and understood why. Printed on the little square of paper were drawings of emergency hand signals for communicating with aircraft from the ground. I recall raising my right hand, shoulder high, and shaking my fist on the plane's second pass, McCune wrote. It was a little cheer, like when your team scored a touchdown or something. Unfortunately, as he learned too late, raising a single arm is a universally recognized signal for all okay, assistance not necessary. The signal for SOS, send immediate help, is two upraised arms. That's probably why after they flew somewhat away, they returned for one more pass, and on that one I gave no signal at all. In fact, I may have even turned my back to the plane as it passed, McCune mused philosophically. They probably blew me off as a weirdo. By the end of September, snow was piling up on the tundra, and the lake had frozen over. As the provisions he'd brought ran out, McCune made an effort to gather rose hips and snare rabbits. At one point, he managed to scavenge meat from a diseased caribou that had wandered into the lake and died. By October, however, he had metabolized most of his body fat and was having difficulty staying warm during the long, cold nights. Certainly someone in town should have figured something to be wrong, me not being back by now, he noted but still no plane appeared. It would be just like Carl to assume that somebody would magically appear to save him, says Stoppel. He was a teamster. He drove a truck, so he had plenty of downtime on the job, just sitting on his butt inside his rig, daydreaming, which is how he came up with the idea for the Brooks Range trip. It was a serious quest for him. He spent the better part of a year thinking about it, planning it, figuring it out, talking to me during our breaks about what gear to take. But for all the careful planning he did, he also indulged in some wild fantasies. For instance, Stoppel continues, Carl didn't want to fly into the bush alone. His big dream originally was to go off and live in the woods with some beautiful woman. He was hot for at least a couple of different girls who worked with us, and he spent a lot of time and energy trying to talk Sue or Barbara or whoever into accompanying him, which in itself was pretty much pure fantasy land. There was no way it was going to happen. I mean, at the pipeline camp where we worked, Pump Station 7, there were probably 40 guys for every woman. But Carl was a dreaming kind of dude. And right up until he flew into the Brooks Range, he kept hoping and hoping and hoping that one of these girls would change her mind and decide to go with him. Similarly, Stoppel explains, 
Carl was the sort of guy who would have unrealistic expectations that someone would eventually figure out that he was in trouble and cover for him. Even as he was on the verge of starving, he probably still imagined that Big Sue was going to fly in at the last minute with a plane load of food and have this wild romance with him. But his fantasy? His fantasy world was so far off the scale that nobody was able to connect with it. Carl just got hungrier and hungrier. By the time he finally understood that nobody was going to come rescue him, he shriveled up to the point where it was too late for him to do anything about it. As McCune's food supply dwindled to almost nothing, he wrote in his journal, I'm getting more than worried. To be honest, I'm starting to get a bit scared. The thermometer dipped to minus five degrees Fahrenheit. Painful, pus-filled frostbite blisters formed on his fingers and toes. In November, he finished the last of his rations. He felt weak and dizzy. Chills racked his gaunt frame. The diary recorded, Hands and nose continue to get worse, as do feet. Nose tip very swollen, blistered, and scabbed. This is a sure, slow, and agonizing way to die. McCune considered leaving the security of his camp and setting out on foot for Fort Yukon, but concluded he wasn't strong enough, that he would succumb to exhaustion and cold long before he got there. The part of the interior where Carl went is a remote, very blank part of Alaska, says Stoppel. It gets colder than hell here, there in the winter. Some people in his situation would have figured out a way to walk out or maybe winter over, but to do that, you'd have to be extremely resourceful. You'd really need to have your shit together. You'd have to be a tiger, a killer, a fucking animal. And Carl was too laid back. He was a party boy. I can't go on like this, I'm afraid, McCune wrote sometime in late November near the end of his journal, which by now filled 100 sheets of blue-lined loose-leaf paper. Dear God in heaven, please forgive me my weakness and my sins. Please look over my family. And then he inclined, he reclined in his wall tent, placed the muzzle of the thirty thirty against his head, and jerked his thumb down on the trigger. Two months later, on February 2nd, 1982, Alaska State Troopers came across his camp, looked inside the tent, and discovered the emaciated corpse frozen hard as stone. There are similarities among Rosalini, Waterman, McCune, and McCamless. Like Rosalini and Waterman, McCamless was a seeker and had an impractical fascination with the harsh side of nature. Like Waterman and McCune, he displayed a staggering paucity for common sense. But unlike Waterman, McCamless wasn't mentally ill. And unlike McCune, he didn't go into the bush assuming someone would automatically appear to save his, his bacon before he came to grief. McCamless didn't conform particularly well to the bush casualty stereotype. Although he was rash, untutored in the ways of the backcountry, and incautious to the point of foolhardiness, he wasn't incompetent. He wouldn't have lasted 113 days if he were. And he wasn't a nutcase. He wasn't a sociopath, and he wasn't an outcast. McCamless was something else, although precisely what is hard to say. A pilgrim, perhaps. Some insight into the tragedy of Chris McCamless can be can be gained by studying predecessors cut from the same exotic cloth. And in order to do that, one must look beyond Alaska. In the bald rock canyons of southern Utah, there, in 1934, a peculiar 20-year-old boy walked into the desert and never came out. His name was Everett Ruess. Okay, now into chapter 9. On the left side of our book, we've got a map um, of the Navajo Res, Arizona, the Grand Canyon National Park, and Utah. We've got like these big canyons um, in Utah. 
And didn't he say something about where this kid was going? Yep, in the Rock Canyons of Southern Utah. Okay, and the chapter is called Davis Gulch. We have Davis Gulch on this map um, in Utah. It's around Lake Powell. I don't know if you guys know where that is, but it's on the map. So if you have your book, look at it. Okay, chapter nine, Davis Gulch. As to when I shall visit civilization, it will not be soon, I think. I have not tired of the wilderness. Rather, I enjoy its beauty and the vagrant life I lead more keenly all the time. I prefer the saddle to the streetcar and star-sprinkled sky to a roof, the obscure and difficult trail leaning into the unknown to any paved highway, and the deep peace of the wild to the discontent bred by cities. Do you blame me then for staying here, where I feel that I belong and I am one with the world around me? It is true that I miss intelligent companionship, but there are so few with whom I can share the things that mean so much to me that I have learned to contain myself. It is enough that I am surrounded with beauty. Even from your scant description, I know that I could not bear the routine and humdrum of the life that you are forced to lead. I don't think I could ever settle down. I have known too much of the depths of life already, and I would prefer anything to an anticlimax. The last letter ever received from Everett Ruess to his brother, Waldo, dated November 11th, 1934. What Everett Ruess was after was beauty, and he conceived beauty in pretty romantic terms. We might be inclined to laugh at the extravagance of his beauty worship. There was not something almost magnificent in his single-minded dedication to it. Aesthetics as a parlor affection is ludicrous and sometimes a little obscene. As a way of life, it sometimes attains dignity. If we laugh at Everett Ruiz, we shall have to laugh at John Muir, because there is little difference between them except age. Wallace Stegner, Mormon Country. Davis Creek is only a trickle during most of the year and sometimes not even that. Originating at the foot of a high rock battlement known as Fifty Mile Point, the stream flows just four miles across the pink sandstone slabs of southern Utah before surrendering its modest waters to Lake Powell, the giant reservoir that stretches 190 miles above Glen Canyon Dam. Davis Gulch is a small watershed by any measure but a lovely one, and travelers through this dry, hard country have for centuries relied on the oasis that exists at the bottom of the slot-like defile. Eerie 900-year-old petroglyphs and pictographs decorate its sheer walls. Crumbling stone dwellings of the long-vanished Kienta and Asazi, the creators of this rock art, nestle in protective nooks. Ancient Anasazi pot shards mingle in the sand with rusty tin cans discarded by turn-of-the-century stockmen who grazed and watered their animals in the canyon. For most of its short length, Davis Gulch exists as a deep, twisting gash in the slick rock, narrow enough in places to spit across, lined by overhanging sandstone walls that bar access to the canyon floor. There is a hidden route into the gulch at its lower end, however, just upstream from where Davis Creek flows into Lake Powell. A natural ramp zigzags down from the canyon's west rim. Not far above the creek bottom, the ramp ends, and a crude staircase appears, chiseled into the soft sandstone by Mormon cattlemen nearly a century ago. The country surrounding Davis Gulch 
is a desiccated expanse of bald rock and brick-red sand. Vegetation is lean. Shade from the withering sun is virtually non-existent. To descend into the confines of the canyon, however, is to arrive in another world. Cottonwoods lean gracefully over drifts of flowering prickly pear. Tall grasses sway in the breeze. The ephemeral bloom of a sego lily peaks from the toe of a 90-foot stone arch, and canyon wrens call back and forth in plaintive tones from a thatch of scrub oak. High above the creek, a spring seeps from the cliff face, irrigating a growth of moss and maidenhair fern that hangs from the rock in lush green mats. Six, de six decades ago in this enchanting hideaway, less than a mile downstream from where the Mormon steps meet the floor of the gulch, 20-year-old Everett Ruess carved his nom de plume into the canyon wall below a panel of Anasazi pictographs. He did so again in the doorway of a small masonry structure built by the Anasazi for storing grain. Nemo, 1934, he scrawled, no doubt moved by the same impulse that compelled Chris McCandless to inscribe Alexander Supertramp, May 1992, on the wall of the Shoshana bus. An impulse not so different, perhaps, from that which inspired the Anasazi to embellish the rock with their own now indecipherable symbols. In any case, shortly after Ruas carved his mark into the sandstone, he departed Davis Gulch and mysteriously disappeared, apparently by design. An extensive search shed no light on his whereabouts. He was simply gone, swallowed whole by the desert. Sixty years later, we still know next to nothing about what became of him. Everett was born in Oakland, California in 1914, the younger of two sons raised by Christopher and Stella Ruess. Christopher, a graduate of Harvard Divinity School, was a poet, a philosopher, and a Unitarian minister, although he earned his keep as a bureaucrat in the California penal system. Stella was a headstrong woman with bohemian tastes and driving artistic ambitions for both herself and her kin. She self-published a literary journal, the Ruiz Quartet, the cover of which was emblazoned with the family maxim, Glorify the Hour. A tight-knit bunch, the Ruesses were also a nomadic family, moving from Oakland to Fresno to Los Angeles to Boston to Brooklyn to New Jersey to Indiana before finally settling in, in Southern California when Everett was 14. In Los Angeles, Everett attended the Otis Art School in Hollywood High. In Hollywood High. As a 16-year-old, he embarked on his first long solo trip, spending the summer of 1930 hitchhiking and trekking through Yosemite and Big Sur, ultimately winding up in, in um, Carmel. Two days after arriving in the latter community, he brazenly knocked on the door of Edward Weston, who was sufficiently charmed by the overwrought young man to humor him. Over the next two months, the eminent photographer encouraged the boy's unevening, uneven but promising efforts at painting and block printing and permitted Ruess to hang around his studio with his own sons, Neil and Cole. At the end of the summer, Everett returned home only long enough to earn a high school diploma, which he received in January 1931. Less than a month later, he was on the road again, tramping alone through the canyonlands of Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico, then a region nearly as sparsely populated and nearly as sparsely populated and wrapped in mystique as Alaska is today. Except for a short, unhappy stint at UCLA, he dropped out after a single semester to his father's lasting dismay. Two extended visits with his parents and a winter in San Francisco, where he insinuated himself into the company of Dorothea Lang, Ansel Adams, and the painter Maynard Dixon, 
Rus would spend the remainder of his meteoric life on the move, living out of a backpack on very little money, sleeping in the dirt, cheerfully going hungry for days at a time. Russ was, in the words of Wallace Stegner, a callow romantic, an adolescent, a, a, oh goodness, there's so many words here, an adolescent aesthetic, an atavistic wanderer of the wastelands. At 18, in a dream, he saw himself plodding through jungles, chinning up the ledges of cliffs, wandering through the romantic waste places of the world. No man with any of the juices of boyhood in him has forgotten those dreams. The peculiar thing about Everett Rues was that he went out and did the things he dreamed about, not simply for a two weeks vacation in the civilized and trimmed wonderlands, but for months and years in the very midst of wonder. Deliberately, he punished his body, strained his endurance, tested his capacity for strenuousness. He took out deliberately over trails that Indians and old timers, old timers warned him against. He tackled cliffs that more than once left him dangling halfway between talus and rim. From his camps by the water pockets or the canyons or high on the timbered ridges of Navajo Mountain, he wrote long, lush, enthusiastic letters to his family and friends, damning the stereotypes of civilization, chanting his barbaric adolescent yawp into the teeth of the world. Ruess turned out many such letters, which bore the postmarks of the remote settlements through which he passed. Cayenta, Chinele, Luca Chuaque, Zion Canyon, Grand Canyon, Mesa Verde, Escalante, Rainbow Bridge, Canyon de Chile. Reading this correspondence, collected in W. L. Rousseau's meticulously researched biography, Everett Ruess, A Vagabond for Beauty, one is struck by Ruess's carving craving for connection with the natural world and by his almost incendiary passion for the country through which he walked. I had some terrific experiences in the wilderness since I wrote you last. Overpowering, overwhelming, he gushed to his friend, Colonel Tingle. But then I am always being overwhelmed. I require it to sustain life. Everett Ruess's correspondence reveals uncanny parallels between Ruess and Chris McCandless. Here are excerpts from three of Ruess's letters. I have been thinking more and more that I shall always be a lone wanderer of the wilderness. God, how the trail lures me. You cannot comprehend its resistless fascination for me. After all, the lone trail is the best. I'll never stop wandering. And when the time comes to die, I'll find the wildest, loneliest, most desolate spot there is. The beauty of this country is becoming part of me. I feel more detached from life and somehow gentler. I have some good friends here, but no one who really understands why I am here or what I do. I don't know of anyone, though, who would have more than a partial understanding. I have gone too far alone. I have always been unsatisfied with life as most people live it. Always I want to live more intensely and richly. In my wanderings this year, I have taken more chances and had more wild adventures than ever before. And what magnificent country I have seen. Wild, tremendous wasteland stretches. Lost mesas, blue mountains rearing upward from the vermilion sands of the deserts. Canyons five feet wide at the bottom and hundreds of feet deep. Cloudbursts roaring down unnamed canyons and hundreds of houses of the cliff dwellers abandoned a thousand years ago. A half century later, McCandless sounds eerily like Ruess, when he declares in a postcard to Wayne Westerberg that I've decided that I'm going to live this way of life for some time to come. 
The freedom and simple beauty of it is just too good to pass up. And echoes of Rues can be heard as well in McCandless's last letter to Ronald Franz, see pages 56 to 58. Rues was just as romantic as McCandless, if not more so, and equally heedless of personal safety. Claiborne Lockett, an archaeologist who briefly employed Rues as a cook while ex excavating an Anasazi cliff dwelling in 1934, told Rousseau that he was appalled by the seemingly reckless manner in which Everett moved around dangerous cliffs. Indeed, Ruas himself boasts in one of his letters, Hundreds of time I have trusted my life to crumbling sandstone and nearly vertical edges in the search for water or cliff dwellings. Twice I was nearly gored to death by a wild bull, but always, so far, I have escaped unscathed and gone forth to other adventures. And in his final letter, Ruas nonchalantly confesses to his brother, I have had a few narrow escapes from rattlers and crumbling cliffs. The last misadventure occurred with Chocolatero, his burrow, stirred up some wild bees. A few more stings might have been too much for me. I was three or four days getting my eyes open and recovering the use of my hands. Also like McCandless, Ruas was undeterred by physical discomfort. At times, he seemed to welcome it. For six days, I've been suffering from the semi-annual poison ivy case. My sufferings are far from over, he tells his friend Bill Jacobs. He goes on. For two days, I couldn't tell whether I was dead or alive. I writhed and twisted in the heat, with swarms of ants and flies crawling over me, while the poison oozed and crusted on my face and arms and back. I ate nothing. There was nothing to do but suffer philosophically. I get it every time, but I refuse to be driven out of the woods. And like McCandless, upon embarking to his terminal odyssey, Rues adopted a new name, or rather a series of new names. In a letter dated March 1st, 1931, he informs his family that he has taken to calling himself Lan Rameau, and request that they please respect my brush name. How do you say it in French? Nom de brush or what? Two months later, however, another letter explains that I have changed my name again to Everett Roulon. Those who knew me formerly thought my name was freakish and an affection of Frenchness. <laughs> Frenchiness. And then in August of that same year, with no explanation, he goes back to calling himself Everett Rues and continues to do so for the next three years until wandering into Davis Gulch. There, for some unknown reason, Everett twice etched the name Nemo, Latin for nobody, into the soft Navajo sandstone, and then vanished. He was 20 years old. The last letters anyone received from Rues were posted from the Mormon settlement of Escalante, 57 miles north of Davis Gulch, on November 11, 1934. Addressed to his parents and his brother, they indicate that he would be incommunicado for a month or two. Eight days after mailing them, Rues encountered two sheep herds about a mile from the gulch and spent two nights at their camp. These men were the last people known to have seen the youth alive. Some three months after Rues departed Escalante, his parents received a bundle of unopened mail forwarded from a postmaster at Marble Canyon, Arizona, wherever it was long overdue. Worried, Christopher and Stella Rues contacted the authorities in Escalante, who organized a search party in early March 1935. Starting from the sheep camp where Ruas was last seen, they began combing the surrounding country, and very quickly found Everett's two burrows at the bottom of Davis Gulch, gazing, grazing contentedly behind a makeshift corral fashioned from brush and tree limbs. The burrows were confined in the upper canyon, just upstream from where the Mormon steps intersect the floor of the gulch. A short distance downstream, the, research f the, re the searchers found unmistakable evidences of Rues's camp and then, in the doorway of an 
Anasazi Granary, below a magnificent natural arch, they came across Nemo, 1934, carved into a stone slab. Four Anasazi pots were carefully arranged on a rock nearby. Three months later, searchers came across another Nemo graffito, a little farther down the gulch. The rising waters of Lake Powell, which began to fill upon the completion of Glen Canyon Dam in 1963, have long since erased both inscriptions. But except for the burrows and their tack, none of Ruess's possessions, his camping paraphernalia, journals, and paintings, was ever found. It is widely believed that Ruess fell to his death while scrambling on one or another canyon wall. Given the treacherous nature of the local topography, most of the cliffs that riddle the region are composed of, the, of Navajo sandstone, a crumbly stratum that erodes into smooth, bulging precipices and ruins penchant for dangerous climbing. This is a credible scenario. Careful searches of cliffs near and far, however, have failed to unearth any human remains. And how to account for the fact that Ruas apparently left the gulch with a heavy load of gear but without his pack animals? These bewildering circumstances have led some investigators to include that Ruas was murdered by a team of cattle rustlers, known to have been in the area, who then stole his belongings and buried his remains and threw them into the, or threw them into the Colorado River. This theory, too, is plausible, but no concrete evidence exists to prove it. Shortly after Everett's disappearance, his father suggested that the boy had probably been inspired to call himself Nemo by Jules Verne's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, a book Everett read many times, in which the pure-hearted protagonist, Captain Nemo, flees civilization and severs his every tie upon the earth. Everett's biographer, W.L. Rousseau, agrees with Christopher Ruess's assessment, arguing that Everett's withdrawal from organized society, his disdain for worldly pleasures, and his signatures as Nemo and Davis Gulch all strongly suggest that he closely identified with the Jules Verne character. Ruess's apparent fascination with Captain Nemo has fed speculation among more than a few Ruess mythographers that Everett pulled a fast one on the world after leaving Davis Gulch and is, or was, very much alive quietly residing somewhere under an assumed identity. A year ago, while filling my truck with gas in Kingman, Arizona, I happened to strike up a conversation about Ruess with a middle-aged pump attendant, a small twitchy man with flecks of skull staining the corners of his mouth. Speaking with persuasive conviction, he swore that he knew a fellow who definitely bumped into Ruess in the late 1960s at a remote hogan in the Navajo Indian Reservation. According to the attendant's friend, Ruess was married to a Navajo woman with whom he'd raised at least one child. The, the veracity of this and other reports of relatively recent Ruess sightings, needless to say, is extremely suspect. Ken Slight, who has spent much time investigating the riddle of Everett Ruess as any other person, is convinced that the boy died in 1934 or early 1935 and believes he knows how Ruess met his end. Slight, 65 years old, is a professional river guide and desert rat with a Mormon upbringing and a reputation for insolence. When Edward Abbey was writing The Monkey Wrench Gang, his Picard-esque novel about mm -hmm. eco-terrorism in the canyon, eco-terrorism in the canyon, where was I? In the canyon country, his pal Kin Slight was said to have inspired the character Seldom Seen Smith. Slight has lived in the region for 40 years, visited virtually all the places Ruess visited, talked to many people who crossed paths with Ruess, taken Ruess's older brother Waldo into Davis Gulch to visit the site of Everett's disappearance. Waldo thinks Everett was murdered, Slight says, but I don't think so. I lived in Escalante for two years, I've talked with the folks who were accused of killing him, and I just don't think they did it, but who knows? You can't never really tell what a person does in secret. 
Other folks believe Everett fell off a cliff. Well, yeah, he could have done that. It'd be an easy thing to do in that country, but I don't think that's what happened. I tell you what I think. I think he drowned. Years ago, while hiking down Grand Gulch, a tributary of the San Juan River, some 45 miles due east of Davis Gulch, Slight discovered the name Nemo carved into the soft mud mortar of an Anasazi granary. Slight speculates that Ruess inscribed this Nemo not long after departing Davis Gulch. After corralling his burrows in Davis, says Slight, Ruess hid all of his stuff in a cave somewhere and took off, playing Captain Nemo. He had Indian friends down on the Navajo reservation, and that's where I think he was heading. A logical route to Navajo country would have taken Ruess across the Colorado River at Hole in the Rock, and then along a rugged trail pioneered in 1880 by Mormon settlers across Wilson Mesa and the Clay Hills, and finally down Grand Gulch to the San Juan River, across which lay the reservation. Everett carved his Nemo on the ruin in Grand Gulch about a mile below where Kalinas Creek comes in, and then continued on down to the San Juan. When he tried to swim across the river, he drowned. That's what I think. Sly believed that if Ruas had made it across the river alive and reached the reservation, it would have been impossible for him to conceal his presence. If he was still playing his Nemo game, even if he was still playing his Nemo game. Everett was a loner, but he liked people too damn much to stay down there and live in secret for the rest of his life. A lot of us are like that. I'm like that. Ed Abbey was like that. It sounds like this McCandless kid was like that. We like companionship, see, but we can't stand to be around people for very long. So we go get ourselves lost, come back for a while, and then get the hell out again. That's what Everett was doing. Everett was strange, Slight concedes, kind of different, but him and McCandless, at least they tried to follow their dream. That's what was great about them. They tried. Not many do. In attempting to understand Everett Ruess and Chris McCandless, it can be illuminating to consider their deeds in a larger context. It is helpful to look at counterparts from a distant place in a century far removed. Off the southeastern coast of Iceland sits a low barrier island called Papos. Treeless and rocky, perpetually clobbered by gales howling off the North Atlantic, it takes the name from its first settlers, now long gone, the Irish monks known as Popper. Walking this gnarled shore one summer, one summer afternoon, I blundered upon a matrix of faint stone rectangles embedded in the tundra, vestiges of the monks' ancient dwellings, hundreds of years older, even, than the Anasazi ruins in Davis Gulch. The monks arrived as early as the 5th and 6th centuries AD, having sailed and rowed from the west coast of Ireland. Setting out in small open bolts called kurags, built from cowhide, stretched over light wicker frames, they crossed one of the most treacherous stretches of ocean in the world without knowing what, if anything, they'd find on the other side. The papar risked their lives and lost them in untold droves, not in the pursuit of wealth or personal glory, or as a claim to new lands in the name of any despot, as the great Arctic explorer and Nobel laureate Friedjof Nansen puts it, these remarkable voyages were undertaken chiefly from the wish to find lonely places where these anchorites might dwell in peace, undisturbed by the turmoil and temptations of the world. When the first handful of Norwegians showed up on the shores of Iceland in the 9th century, the Papar decided the country had become too crowded, even though it was still all but uninhabited. The monks' response was to climb into the Kurags and row off toward Greenland. They were drawn across the storm-wracked ocean, drawn west past the edge of the known world by nothing more than a hunger of the spirit, a yearning of such queer intensity that it beggars the modern imagination. Reading of these monks, one is moved by their courage, their reckless innocence, and their urgency for their desire. 
Reading of these monks, one can't help thinking of Everett Ruess and Chris McCandless. Okay, so for the questions for these two chapters, I'm going to ask you um, to do some like regular critical thinking stuff and then some creative stuff. So the first question I'm going to ask you is like, which one of these examples do you think Chris is most like? So we know that um, Krakauer thinks that it's Everett Ruess, um, and he compares him in all of these ways, but what do you think? Do you think differently? Um, also, we're going to talk a little bit about like why, like what the point of including all of these examples in the middle of this book is. Like, Why did he interrupt the narrative with all of these stories about people that don't maybe necessarily have anything to do with what's going on? Then I want you to consider if you were going to have a family motto, like Everett Ruess's family, their family motto was something like, um, oh gosh, where did, why did I not stick a bookmark in this book? Something like glorify the day or something like that. What would your family motto be? Um, and then finally, I'm, we're going to think about like our own capacity to pursue our dreams, right? So for Everett Ruess, he was searching for beauty. Chris McCandless was searching for something, like capital S something. If we're looking for something in our own lives, capital S or lowercase s, to like what extent are we willing to pursue it? And I'm so sure that I will have phrased that question better on the Google form, but that's what I want us to be thinking about here. So it's like the main question of this book. Chris McCandless went for it. You know, like his dream was this Alaskan odyssey, and even though it ultimately killed him, he did it right? He went out into the bush. How many of us have these dreams that we're so afraid to pursue? Are you willing to go for it? That's the question. And if so, where's the line? Okay, so I'll put those questions on Google Classroom, and the next episode will be up on Monday. Um, I hope that you guys are doing well, washing your hands, um, staying away from large groups of people or small groups of people, or you know people in general. Maybe Everett Ruess is right, and um, people are exhausting. In any case, I hope you're well, and I will talk to you on Monday.